Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So we've got a little bit of a postcards mystery on our hands, Lorraine, yes. because um, Emma, one of our favourites from the Facebook group, posted the other day, she said, did I spot you, Lorraine, at the beginning of the Luther movie? (laughs) (laughs) Now, I mean, I'm just going to quickly say, I haven't never got into it, but I quickly watched on Fast Forward, and all I could spot was a murdered corpse, a Burns victim, and a strange man in a wig. Were any of those you, Lorraine? And do you know what Emma is talking about? I think, and I have in fact checked this, like the... (laughs) investigative journalist that I am I think Hermione Norris is in it ah and I am often I say often just once before yeah (laughs) have been mistaken for her it's the blonde bob it's the blonde bob isn't it and we all look fairly similar she is exactly the same age as me I also get mistaken for um Miranda, what's the name in uh, Blackadder? <laughs> but I think that might just be the tone. Oh, really? <laughs> Queenie? Oh, she's Queenie. Queenie, Queenie. Yes. Oh, that's a good one. Yes, excellent. Yeah, no, I'm not in so Luther. Not moonlighting no. as an actress or a corpse. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. And I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hothouse, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and experts on all things midlife, from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, via fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness, careers, relationships, caring for elderly relatives and your finances. Yes, we ask experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier, healthier and more harmonious second act. Now, I consider us both very lucky in our jobs, Lorraine, because not only do we get to talk to and interview some brilliant women every week, and we have a couple of those coming up later on the show, We also get to have lovely chats on social media and via our emails with our smart, funny, lovely listeners. And we also get to meet fascinating women when we're out and about networking, networking with a capital N at events, don't we? Hobnobbing, as I like to call it, because I'll use anything with the word hobnob Mm -hmm. in it. Do you know, I've had an amazing week and I say that feeling very grateful about it and very lucky to be in this situation. I've met some amazing women. So I did an International Women's Day event for the insurance industry, very fascinating, high-level women there. And I met Tamara Howe, who is the Director of Commercial Opportunities at Naked TV, and they make The Apprentice, they make loads, part of Mm. Fremantle, they make loads of big TV shows. She's one of the highest, well, highest-level black women in television. There are so few black women at really high, there's so few women at a very high level um, in television. She was just so amazing, 58, she's been in TV 30 years, she was part of um, making, she was a producer, EastEnders, Strictly, all those big things you've seen on telly, Tamara mm. has been involved in. Very unassuming, very quiet, really amazing. She was on a panel talking about finding your voice with me. Um, and also Manizi Chowdhury, who's the CEO of Exposure. They're a big PR company. They work with brands like Nike, etc. She called herself a triple threat. She's, she's a Muslim. She's a, a, a woman. She's a mum. She's Asian. She was just brilliant as well. She was quite reluctant to call herself a CEO, which I thought, Ooh. I said, say it because you are, because that's the amazing thing you've done. Yes. And then I went to, uh, Anya Highmarch had a dinner called Women I Admire, um, and I went to it, and some amazing women there. And I sat next to a woman called Alice Black, who used to run the Design Museum. She left in her early 50s to set Mm. up her own business because she said she just had this passion. She just really wanted to run Mm. her own business. And it's called Art Ultra. 
And it basically heroes emerging artists. It finds them, heroes them, gets their work, links them up. And it, she just said she is enjoying her life so much at this stage. And she's just got this whole thing ahead of her in her 50s. Yeah, I just had such a great week meeting amazing people. You've been doing that too, haven't you? Well, we've both been gadding around, but gadding. I think I have to have to do the old uh, name drop that we were invited, weren't we, to the very schmancy, fancy schmancy invitation to the US Ambassador's Residence, summoned to the US Ambassador's Residence in Regent's Park. It was very exciting, wasn't it? Yeah. It, it was. It was really great because we met, um, well, we heard from and we met the, um, the US Ambassador, Jane Hartley. Google her, everybody, because her history is phenomenal. And Sue Fox, the senior VP of Estee Lauder. And we heard about some fantastic charities that they are championing. This was part of Women's um, History Month. We also bumped into our old magazine pals, didn't we? And we saw some former guests, Dr. Zoe Williams and the beauty journalist at a jewel we had such an amazing time there we did we did and you always meet interesting people mm. at these events and i kind of try and make a point of of it and um we also had a little nosy around didn't we because we sort of went yes. off into that beautiful big green room it's on our instagrams actually if anybody wants to have a little look and this woman just started talking to us and she, I, I kind of started talking to her and saying oh my goodness i feel like i'm in the west wing because i've just started watching yeah. the west wing i never watched it and i've just started it so oh, that was quite exciting so that's kind of how we got going and um turns out she's a baroness lowless <laughs> this <laughs> this woman baroness morgan of drefillin and she also happens to be the chief executive of Breast Cancer Now. And we had such a funny chat, you know, West Wing. We somehow, don't even get me there, we got on to body hair as well. This is your random segues into, yes, which we will talk about later in the show as well. Yes, exactly. Anyway, it was so lovely chatting to her and obviously talking about the work she does at Breast Cancer Now. But um, I'm hoping she's going to be listening to this episode because we actually put it into her downloads. Yes. <laughs> she got her phone out. You... <laughs> download it, download it. And she, she hopefully, Baroness Morgan, you are listening to this episode. And in the interconnectivity of things, mm. when I was at the Anya dinner, I was chatting to Maria Borshaw because, you know, I'm an advisor at the Tate. So she yes. runs the Tate. And she said that Jane Hartley, the ambassador, when she first came to London, had gone into that residence and said, why are all these pictures of, uh, male, why are they all male, male artists? artists? Of course they and were. And she'd talked to Maria and had it all changed so there was oh, more equal good. representation. What an amazing woman, just sort of quietly doing it well she's the only the second female ambassador second female in 200 years it's shocking isn't it yes well we we should get her to download our podcast as well we have <laughs> yes. to go we'll have to go back won't we trish it's the second biggest garden in london after buckingham palace that residence did you know that no? well i had a quick peep out the windows but didn't get out into the garden <laughs> and you can get married there apparently oh. as well yes you can get married there if you're an american um, if I marry my second husband, might be an American. I might put in for that. American tech billionaire. Anyway, so we do want to talk about people who subscribe to the podcast, don't we? Because you are the reason that we are able to do this in and out for everybody, and we love your support and we do appreciate it. And we'd like some more support, just a tiny bit um, mm. of more support in our next big, slightly scary venture, which we're really looking uh, forward to. Um, it's world domination for midlife women, I think. We're going to make all your voices louder and more powerful. I am talking about Postcards from Midlife Live, mm. our two-day festival in May on the 19th and 20th of May. That's Friday and Saturday. And we would love you to come along and meet all the fascinating women because all these women we keep meeting, we keep inviting them. So. Yes, we do. They're all going to be there. <laughs> They're all going to be there. It's going to be a great day out. Come with a friend because we're basically bringing the podcast to life, aren't we? Yes, we are. And all the experts we've had on the show, lots of the celebrities, they're all going to be there. And we're announcing new speakers and experts every week, in fact. And we've just heard from nutritionist Petronella Ravenshire, who's been on the show. And she's the creator of the Human Being Diet. That She's going to be doing a talk. She's going to come along, do a talk for you all and sign copies of her new cookbook. Oh, yeah, I've got that new cookbook. It's Trish. good, isn't it? Some yeah. good things in there. She's actually flying in from Florida, especially for the show. And it's really hard to get an appointment with her. So this is a way to meet her. If you want to get a ticket, I'm going to say this now before I forget. It's postcard from Midlife Live. 
dot com is it dot uk oh no dot co uk <laughs> we always get that wrong don't we i think the people will find us yes please find us and just book yes. a ticket who else have we got Trish? well we've also got the brilliant midlife stylist melissa murrell who will be showing us all how to create an easy capsule wardrobe and if you haven't seen her on youtube videos yet um i i will find that surprising she's got two hundred thousand followers on youtube Definitely take a look because she is genius at dressing women of every shape and size and she understands all the dilemmas that particularly we midlife women have when it comes to dressing because she is a midlife woman herself. Yes, well, talking of dilemmas, uh, we're going to be getting answers to all the big parenting dilemmas today because our special guest is Lisa Damore. She's a clinical psychologist, New York Times bestselling author and New York Times columnist, actually. Her new book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, is a must-read for anyone trying to understand this, I suppose you would call it an intense and fraught time in our youngsters' lives just before they come adults. And the actor Jennifer Garner put uh, Lisa's book up on Instagram, actually, for 14 million followers. So (laughs) I'm really looking forward to talking to her. Yeah. Who else have you been talking to, Trish? Well, we've got another another Jen, in fact, the author Jen Graneman, about her new book, Sensitive, um, which was literally a light bulb moment for me when I read I it. Know. Oh, it helped. It really helped me make sense of, well, I suppose me, <laughs> because why I'm like I am, and a lot of the character traits and thought patterns that have always seemed bit at odds with the world uh, we're gonna go gonna delve into that aren't we in a minute yes yeah because your thought patterns are a bit of a conundrum to me sometimes <laughs> um uh do you remember your random nostalgia noodle you know when yes. i said to you we're going to do nostalgia noodle um about the jam song a town called malice yeah. and then when we started recording it you were talking about a book called a town like alice yes, and a like, film that you've never heard of hell is going on there anyway we got a lovely email about that this week so if you do want to contact us, you can send us emails then. We will read them out and interact with you. It's just me and Trish. We personally monitor that account and it's hello at postcardfrommidlife.com. That one is .com, You got that one. It? <laughs> yes, yeah. that's a .com. Um, so Harriet wrote, I love this. Harriet wrote, I've just listened with laughter to your podcast while sunning myself in the Maldives. Highly recommend it to all midlifers. Yeah, wish we were there. Mm. Anyway, the, t- the book, A Town Like Alice, is much better than the film. She was listening to you, Trish. I read it at school and it inspired me to go backpacking in Oz in 1990. And I had to go to Alice Springs and it was so how it was described when I read the book. And I read the book again as I continued on my travels. Love your podcast, Harriet. Harriet, lovely message from the Maldives there. Thank you very much for that. Now, before we get to the how to win section where we talk about your uh, strange segues into places in your little personality. I'm just going to put out a public service announcement for listeners here because I was watching something on TV this week which A, warmed my heart and which B, I think is probably the best thing I've seen on television for a really long time. Have you seen Maternal, Trish, on ITV? Yes, I have. I think I might have recommended it to you about five weeks ago, but moving on, you started watching it. (laughs) Not listening, not listening. (laughs) Yes, so can I just tell you why I like it? It's written by Jackie uh, Honus-Martin, and she's a theatre writer and producer, so um, it comes with that kind of stage theatre feel to it, and it's directed by the BAFTA-nominated director, James um, Griffiths. stars Laura Pulver, Lisa McGrills, and Parminda Nagra. It's so refreshing mm. because this is the first thing I've seen. It's about surgeons. Uh, it's about work, uh, people working in the NHS and how they balance new motherhood with working. But it's the first thing I've seen where it doesn't portray women with young children as hopeless and incompetent, mm. as constantly chasing their tails, always being late for school, as forgetting everything. It's about these amazing women who've got amazing careers, which they really want to hang on to and they really want to do well, working in a system that it's not fit for purpose for them. It's just not fit, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I just found it, I just think if you haven't seen I did find it quite, quite triggering, <laughs> Trish. <laughs> I did I think did of those well. awful moments yeah. when I took yeah. some of them to nursery when they, when they weren't well and I shouldn't have done it, but I had meetings that absolutely had to happen and couldn't, you know, no one else was going to sort that out for me. Forgetting the swimming kit and then the panic attacks in the loo and the, just the overwhelm yeah. of it all. Uh, it is, it's such a good show and I love all the, those three actresses. But I have to point out that Lisa McGrillis is uh, in one of our favourite shows of all time, isn't she? Mum. 
She plays the girlfriend. She does. She plays the girlfriend brilliantly. Yes, she she is. It's just like the perfect cast. It's the perfect TV show. I binge watched it on a Saturday afternoon because I couldn't stop watching it. Absolutely bravo. Script is amazing. Fantastic. Putting that out there for all of you. Brilliant. And so you might listen to my recommendations from now on. You might might learn it's something. It's possible, Trish. It's possible <laughs> I may. Yes. Um, anyway, let's move on to how to win at midlife because I think this is going to really resonate uh, with our listeners. Now, my little work wife, you had a little epiphany recently, didn't you? And we thought it was a really good topic for our how to win at midlife section. Um, I'm going to call this now Unleashing the Real Trish. Do you want to enlighten our listeners before they get a bit scared and think that you might be she hulking out of this? <laughs> Yes, don't worry. I'm not about to rip off my clothes and start roaring. Uh, I mean, I did more than enough of that in my perimenopause days, the rage-filled days. Hot, hot, hot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Cross, cross, angry, angry. Um, What I'm I'm actually unleashing is my sensitivity. Um, I'm finally claiming it and owning it as a positive thing because I've been talking to this author called Jen Graneman who has written a book called Sensitive, which is all about validating and destigmatizing how society sees sensitive people and how we sensitive people see ourselves. Yeah, so we all have a sensitive side, don't we? Mm, but I think we do. this is more specific, isn't it? This is more neurodiverse. Maybe you should explain what highly sensitive means and some of your experiences of living with that. Because I know that wherever we go, you're very much more tuned into what's going on in the environment than, than I am, for example. I mean, I don't notice a lot of it, but you notice really specific things and they really affect you, don't they? Yeah, they do, actually. Yeah. And according to Jen, she wrote the book with a guy called Andre Solo. And in their research, they found that about a third of people, so that's quite a lot of people, that's, actually, yeah. have genes that make them more, both more physically and emotionally sensitive than others. And what that means is that, as you say, we're very, very tuned into what is going on in any environment that we find ourselves ourselves in our senses are heightened i can smell hear feel touch all of those things are incredibly heightened and you're very aware of other people's behaviors and emotions too and and also you feel things very strongly so your your own emotions you can feel really strongly so you might like be incredibly moved by watching something beautiful like a ballet or something you know really disturbing like a news story just you know makes you burst into tears but shall I share a few of my examples you've witnessed a few witnessed a few of them Trish (laughs) yes well so this is not unusual once um during Paris Fashion Week I think we were staying at the Park Hyatt I had to change my bedroom four times because I could hear a slight buzzing noise and I literally think the staff were about to kind of throw me out because I just couldn't I so, tuned into this noise don't know what it was <laughs> unplugged the fridge everything couldn't cope four bedrooms what else happens I'll do a few more noises so Neil recently had to stop him wearing a particular jacket when we went walking because I could hear the rustle the rustle of his arm against the jacket couldn't enjoy my beautiful walk in a meeting once I asked a lovely lovely colleague of mine who wears a lot of jewellery, a lot of bracelets and, and clang, clanking on the table, a lot of gesticulating. I literally was like, spent 10, 15 minutes thinking, I can't cope, I can't cope. I, can't. I had to ask her to take the bracelets off in the middle. It was right. actually a board meeting, Marie Claire, not good. And then there's the kind of physical stuff. Like, so I know we laugh about my elasticated trousers and my waist, <laughs> my vests rather. With you, I, we're laughing I with you, darling. I can't cope with the sensation of fabric mm. on my skin, certain fabrics on my skin. So that's kind of very heightened. But then there's also the kind of tuning into people and their emotions. So the other day I was on, on the tube and someone was sitting in a chair and the person standing next to them, their sort of like backpack was right in this person's face. And I literally was like could hardly breathe because I was thinking that person must be so uncomfortable, that person's so insensitive, they've got their backpack in. But she was sitting there quite happily, didn't even notice. Not noticed, but I, I was getting notice. really upset about it. So it's this sort of very heightened sense of being in your environment and, uh, you know, just tuning in to just too much. It's a survival instinct, isn't it? Yeah. I guess it's a protective survival instinct. And do you think this explains your overthinking, which I have had words with you? <laughs> 
yes. about. It takes very time-consuming. Yeah, I think, um, yes, uh, very sensitive people tend to be kind of perfectionists. And we're, mm. we pause before speaking, we think before acting, because we're always trying to kind of work out how others are feeling. And it's how our brains process lots of different factors and we as we formulate responses yeah. or manage outcomes for situations and there's, there's actually a checklist in the book which is really helpful i ticked about three quarters of them the kind of 75 percent <laughs> yes. on the scale exactly but Je- as jen pointed out so this is a this is a reframing exercise for me yeah. we've talked about reframing yeah. a lot before, it's not a problem so, solving is it no it's yes. a reframing so as jen pointed out she said well you might be overthinking and what you need to do is learn to get to the point, which is you're very helpful with this for me, where you just have to step forward and take action. But a lot of people are also underthinking and not considering others and the implications of their actions. So, mm. so there's both going on, isn't there? It's kind of exhausting, though, and quite stressful to be thinking about. And we talk about it a lot, don't we, to constantly be thinking about what... We had that issue with the lady trying to give you some lemonade once, didn't we? Oh, where was that? I couldn't cope. There was, there was a lovely waitress trying to give you yeah. some homemade lemonade that they just made at this restaurant, and you don't like lemonade. <laughs> and instead of saying, no, I don't like lemonade, as I would have done, she kept coming back because you kept saying, oh, maybe in a minute I'll feel like... I'm, maybe I couldn't work out why you wouldn't just yeah. say no I don't like lemonade but you didn't want to upset her yes exactly. so it was it must be really exhausting to worry about this yeah it is <laughs> well it can be I think sometimes it's it's um it isn't worrying about what people think so much as anticipating needs yeah. or what people are trying to do around me and, and again Jen says that's your brain doing what it does best processing things we sort of think and feel things very deeply you think about every angle every possibility every outcome but again, the reframing, what that does is it makes us really great partners and parents, apparently, because we're good listeners, we hold emotional space well, which is kind of probably why I like doing the coaching side of my career. And we're good friends too, which well, I, I think that's very good. Agree with. And actually in the workplace, sensitive people can excel as leaders. Obviously, I was a leader, you te- but you tend to have a, a kind of compassionate leadership style. Not It's not personality driven so much mm. as creative, inclusive environments that you're trying to bring together it's very valid that leadership style as well it shouldn't Mm. be underestimated and I know a lot of people would say that about when you were running Marie Claire Red in style big magazines you edited Um, but it's also I think a little bit about different styles isn't it because we both learned a lot when we were in in the workplace because in creative and inclusive environment is looking at everyone's neurodiverse Mm -hmm. needs which I think is the next forefront actually for employers looking at neurodiverse needs I'm very different from you. So I had a very gregarious extrovert (laughs) leadership style, but I knew that that would be difficult for some of the more sensitive people in my family. Difficult. So I called in a coach to work with me on how I would interact Mm -hmm. with those people in the environment. Because I also like to employ quite gregarious, outgoing people. And once you've got three or four of them in the room and two or three sensitive people, you've really got to work on how they interact with each other. But what I learned, and it makes you very self-aware, is that no one style is better than the other. But it makes you really think about how people interact Mm -hmm. with each other. And it makes you really understand that we are all somehow, somewhere, quite neurodiverse. And we have to take that into account. And it shouldn't be seen as a flaw or a stigma or a problem to solve. And there isn't a one-size-fits-all, tough-love way of working and you've physically got to accommodate everyone's need and not see these things as abnormal or a stigma haven't you yeah yeah you know in particular sensitive boys and men I think it's you know obviously women we're talking about it and um you know bringing it into our management style but if you're a sensitive boy or a man in particular you just sort of get told to toughen up don't you toughen up get over it from an early age and you know kind of bring it back to childhood I was a very shy and anxious child and you know as I kind of grew into my teenage years I just was like I thought my ability to feel these incredibly strong emotions was just like a really negative thing because my brain was always in overdrive working out what other people were doing how they were behaving what they were thinking and I would compare myself to that and I could only conclude that my sort of quieter qualities had to be negative or less than I wasn't as good as as the kind of loud boisterous people who talk in class Mm. uh, those kind of people but Jen and Andre argue that sensitivity is actually a superpower and um, they say there are five mighty gifts that all sensitive people are born with can you go invisible (laughs) 
Well, that's the problem, is you quite often make yourself invisible when you really shouldn't be. What, what are these? What okay. are these? Tell well, me. These are all things, obviously, again, that we all have to certain degrees. Um, but, you, you know, again, highly sensitive people will have them in spades. So empathy, obviously, putting yourself in other shoes, as you talked about in terms of your management style, that's really important. Creativity, because your minds are kind of really noticing detail and you're making a lot of connections and you've got a lot of emotions, yeah. vivid emotions, that makes you wired for creativity. Apparently, there's lots of examples of super famous creative people in the book. Your sensory intelligence, your awareness of your environment through your senses, and then your your depth of processing, mm. because although you take in a lot of information, you do a lot more with it as well, or can do a lot more with it, and your depth of emotion. So if you're very aware about your own emotions, you know, we talk a lot about our children mm. trying to get them to tune into their emotions and own their emotions and sit with emotions, then that's kind of quite powerful as well in terms of what you can do with the moods of, of other people around you. And I'm fascinated by the idea that being sensitive does not make you an introvert, because that's the kind of generalised assumption if you want to ignore people's kind of neurology, isn't it? Because you aren't an introvert, are you? No, I'm not. I really love social situations. But sometimes it can be a bit overwhelming, Mm. you know, I mean, for for everybody, I suppose, and you just get home, you're just like, God, I need a day on my own, I just need to be in my own space. But I love to be in social situations. But there are overlaps, obviously, between highly sensitive people, introverts, and people on the autistic spectrum. And of course, we we're discovering, we've been discovering really, since we've been doing this podcast, that many women in midlife are now discovering that they are autistic that they are on the spectrum and we've spoken to quite a few of those now haven't we yeah we have and I think it's being talked about more and more we had um the well-being specialist Maisie Hill who wrote Mm. period power on and she'd been diagnosed with autism and she's if you've got to follow on Instagram actually because she's really clever about how it affects your day-to-day life and it's worth listening to that episode I'm feeling a bit sorry for little Trish in the 70s what what are Jen's views on raising sensitive children how can we help them? Yeah, well, she said, first of all, it's like you should know if you have a sensitive kid quite early yeah. on in the process because they will experience big emotions. Um, obviously, all toddlers experience big emotions and make it very loud. But they're overwhelming for sensitive children. They're, exactly. they're un- unbearable for them to deal with, I think. They are. And they notice a lot of small changes in their yeah. environment. So if a school teacher suddenly has, um, I don't know, starts wearing a new pair of shoes or something, yeah. they might start noticing things like that but they will also seem quite wise beyond their years they'll be very perceptive they might experience sensory discomfort too so you know you hear I've got friends who've got kids like they want to wear the same outfit all the time or whatever that that kind of thing Um, and then they're very likely to be very considerate and conscientious and of course the main thing to remember here is that sensitivity is not something to be fixed it's not a flaw in a child it's a strength and we we have to kind of embrace it if we think we have sensitive children not make excuses for them and boys in particular can find themselves being bullied you know if they're sensitive so I think take you know sort of extra care and attention in those in that situation if you do have a sensitive son noticing and listening I Mm. think and and helping them as opposed to telling them to just deal with it. Um, We are going to be speaking to one of the world's leading parenting experts, Lisa DeMore, shortly when we'll find out more about parenting dilemmas. But I guess this sensitivity plays into the idea of millennials and Gen Z being called snowflakes by Mm. Gen Xers and boomers. Well, we've been brought up by boomers who were quite tough love orientated, I think. Um, And also this one size fits all system for everything is really unhelpful. Um, But uh, I think millennials in particular are really good about talking about their emotions and feelings, although we do have to work out how they deal with the world because the world is still not set up for them. And I sometimes worry that focusing entirely on your own needs, you know, if you're very sensitive, you're only ever thinking about yourself because you have to do all this processing Mm. all the time. It can make it quite hard for you to exist in this world where no one is thinking. We just need to encourage this inclusive view of neurodiversity, don't we? Yeah. We'll talk about it a little yeah. bit more. Yeah, I would say, well, I would say that since people aren't thinking about themselves, you're generally mm. really not thinking about yourself, you're thinking about others. And, you know, I just think it's that acknowledging of your physical and emotional experiences and understanding them. And I think, Jen, again, in the book, there's something they call the toughness myth, the idea that you have to hide your sensitivity and emotions and that you can't show your softer size. But I think the millennials... Gen Zers aren't doing that. Gen X had to, didn't we? We we had to. It's a bit unfair. We had to. It's a bit like I mean, you know, some women we've found 
with all our menopause conversations and, and we do kind of get it but older women have just been a little bit less understanding and have that well I had to suffer and buck up so so do you but I think things are changing and this is another area where we are seeing change in how it's the it's the slight dismantling of the patriarchal <laughs> society like one little thing at a time isn't it yeah I think it's embracing everyone whatever wherever they are on on the scales of neurodiversity and accepting it without judgment and and working around it and working with them to work within the system as it is. So I guess that we're going to sum up by saying that you're going to embrace your sensitivity and see it as a superpower. Shall I get you a little Miss Sensitive cape or something like that? (laughs) Oh, I'd love that. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. She should be one of the Mr. Men. Oh, yes, Mr. <laughs> Men, Miss, or Miss, little Misses or Mr. Men. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, it's funny, I think, as well, that this is all kind of happening in midlife as well, where kind of going through menopause and what that does and the, the kind of spirit-led living stuff that I've talked about on the show before that I'm kind of into. But it's really, the book's really helped me to kind of reframe it, understand myself more and appreciate my qualities and values. And, Mm. you know, it's important to remember that just because you're sensitive doesn't mean that you can't do, like you like to say, you can't do hard things. You can't do tough things just because you feel things deeply or or that you can have careers where you have to make big decisions, uh, make tough decisions that have a big impact just means that you're going to do it in a different way, possibly more considered way and um, apparently sensitive people are considered some of the most resilient so we have a lot of resilience but we just again as we say just just need to keep changing the narrative on this well also raising your voice yeah. you know this is what we say to women isn't it in midlife you work out what your needs are and you work out these are not problems or flaws and then you say out loud I need this for yeah. this to work for me I need to be in an environment like this for this or I can't do this because it won't work for me and I won't be at my best self it's about that raising and finding your voice isn't it hope you like that listeners um if you want to take part in this conversation please join our facebook group because we would like to hear your experiences on this too because it's all about laughing and learning isn't it i'd like to learn uh with women especially women leaders um, yeah and if anyone thinks that they or their child are more of an introvert and want to kind of explore that a bit more jen has a great website called introvert dear D-E-A-R, as not a, not like a Bambi deer, Introvert Deer, which has lots of really great articles that I, I just kind of got in a little rabbit hole with it, started reading it, but it's it's really worth exploring. And also I have come across and read, and I cannot recommend it enough, I recommend it to everyone I meet uh, with kids, a book by a uh, psychiatrist, Dr. Thomas Boyce. It's called The Dandelion and the Orchid, Why Sensitive People Struggle. And it looks at the way sensitive children should be parented by the same parent in a different way. He tells this wonderful story of a mum who comes in with her four boys who are really close in age, and she says, these three are okay, but there's something wrong with this one. Oh, gosh. And that's the kind... I mean, this was years, you know, decades ago, but it's that attitude we have to get rid of. Yes, marvellous. Right, shall we delve into more on the parenting side of this chat and meet one of your parenting heroes, isn't she? She's amazing, Lisa Damore. Yes, and I think also just to mention, even if you don't have teen kids, um, what Lisa's going to say and what we'll talk about is really good for you in terms of your own psychology. So it's worth listening through to this, if you even if you haven't got teenagers, because she talks a lot about where you are in midlife based on what you were as a teenager. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Today's guest is one of the world's foremost experts on nurturing family harmony. In fact, she's the expert you wish you had on speed dial the moment your beloved offspring hit their teens. It's clinical psychologist Dr. Lisa Demore, whose best-selling parenting books, Untangled and Under Pressure, have changed lives. And Lisa is here today to answer your most pressing parenting questions. 
The 52-year-old mum of two daughters aged 12 and 19 has had more than 25 years on the front line of adolescent mental health, working with troubled teens individually and their families too. She supported adolescents in schools and is renowned for her methodical attention to the scientific research behind what's happening to teenagers' bodies and their brains as they grow. Lisa's new book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable and Compassionate Adolescents, is a deep dive into how we can help our children develop their identity and thrive in adulthood. It's an invaluable guide for every parent and caregiver who thinks they might be doing it all wrong and may be confused as to why teenagers can sometimes be such an overwhelming and unexpected challenge. It's already a New York Times bestseller and this week actor Jennifer Garner, a mum of three, sung its praises to her 14 million followers on Instagram. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Lisa. Oh, Lorraine, thank you so much for having me. Now, I don't really know where to start because there's just so much. There's so much to solve and so much to say, but maybe we should begin with you as a mum and an expert. Tell us a bit about Dr. Lisa Damore and why you picked this particular area of psychology. So I'm a clinical psychologist. I got my PhD 27 years ago. It's been a long time. And I quickly started working with teenagers as my specialty area. I think there were a couple of reasons. One, I really like teenagers and not everybody does. And I I find it to be, for me, the most fascinating phase of development, a really pivotal phase of development and enjoy spending time with teenagers. Enjoy, honestly, how quickly they improve when Mm. helped in loving ways. And so it's true that in any community, there's not enough people who will see teenagers. Not a lot of clinicians actually enjoy teenagers as much as I wish they did. And were you um, working with teenagers before your own children became teenagers? And how did that play out for you as a mother and as a clinical psychologist with this you know, very specific specialism? I was. So I started practicing. I got my PhD when I was 26 years old, which is on the young side, and um, then did a three-year postdoctoral fellowship but was up and running as a practicing clinician before I was 30 and didn't have my first daughter until I was 33. And so she's now 19. She's in college. So there was a long stretch that I was practicing before children and then even before teenagers. The impact on my personal life of that in truth came more from my conversations with teenagers' parents than with the teenagers themselves, because the work of you know being a clinician who cares for kids and teenagers is you also are meeting with parents. And what I kept hearing over and over again from parents was, it just went so fast. We can't believe he's a senior. We can't believe you know we're getting ready to say goodbye for this kid to go to college. And the fact of the matter is that I personally can be quite controlling. I'm an only child. I like my space. (laughs) I like it just so. And I think if I were in a different line of work and hadn't heard this refrain over and over from parents about how quickly their kids were out of the house, if I'm honest, I would have been harder to live with. Mm -hmm. Um, I would have been more insistent that the house look a certain way, that the shoes get picked up, that my space remain under my control in the same way that I have always liked it. And I think because of this refrain from parents, I adopted, and I'm glad I did, I adopted an attitude of, you know what, this is going to fix itself. Like the stuff's going to go away no matter what I do, and then I'm going to miss it. And so I'm sure my two daughters would be very accurate in saying, no, 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 mom, you've remained plenty controlling. Like I'm sure (laughs) I have. But I also know that the degree of what I would call petty concerns that I have pursued is significantly lowered than if I had been in another line of business. And now that I've got a kid in college, I miss her shoes all over the place. And I'm glad when she comes home and leaves them around. Well, this new book is such an eye-opener. I mean, I've read both your previous books. I also interviewed you for my Parenting Teens book, and I wrote that in 2021. But much has changed since then uh, for our teenagers. And, you know, I don't want to panic our listeners, but the statistics are not great when it comes to teen mental health, either here or in the US. Tell us what's going on right now for adolescents, because we are seeing such awful headlines. I would say one of the main inspirations for this book was the pandemic and its impact on teenagers. You know, having practiced as long as I have, I've never seen anything like this in terms of sheer suffering and sheer suffering at scale. So that was one reason I wrote it. The other reason I wrote it is that we've had this sort of sliding definition in the culture about what mental health is that 
actually, I don't think has helped us very much. And what I mean by that is that we have come increasingly to equate being mentally healthy with feeling calm or relaxed or happy, which is not how psychologists see it. And so the aim of this book was to really advance a much more accurate definition, which is mental health is about having feelings that fit their context and then managing those feelings effectively. And that's really what the whole book unpacks. But in terms of how we got to a place where there's a lot of disease, like you know, with distress, yeah. actually, not even mental health concerns, where we're not actually comfortable with the ideas of teenagers or ourselves being in distress. I think there were three main players in that. One of them is like the rise of commercialized wellness. So yeah. I am a fan of wellness. I think it often helps us to maintain a sense of emotional equilibrium. I worry about marketing attached to wellness that suggests that there might be some Zen place out there that we could all get to. There's no such thing. I think it can feel um, demoralizing or frustrating to always be pursuing it. Another factor that's very real is that there's been a real rise in the prescription of psychotropic medications. We have many, many more than we did when I was first released into the world as a clinician. I will be the first to say antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications change people's lives, in some cases save people's lives. I would not want to practice without them. But when we look at the sheer number of prescriptions, it's very, very high. And I worry that for some, it can give the impression that we should be able to get rid of distress, that we should be able to find the right medication that keeps people from having to feel emotional discomfort. Yeah. And then the third reason is that teenagers do feel worse. We were seeing these numbers rise in the US um, 10 years ago. We started to see the numbers go up of teenagers reporting depression and anxiety. And then of course that accelerated through the pandemic. But the truth is now, to answer your question, Lorraine, now about like, what are we looking at now? We don't really know. The numbers lag quite a while in terms of when the data are collected and when they're reported. But I also do think we do see that a lot of kids, once school normalized, once they were able to return to their more typical routines, for a lot of kids, that was a big factor in improving overall mental health. Yeah. And how do we, as parents, not panic about this? Because obviously, we, we're sort of slightly afraid, aren't we, of our teenage children's feelings and their behaviors. We're scared. I mean, I was quite scared of my my kids' behaviors, not of them, but just like, oh my goodness, I don't know how to deal with this, even though we've been teenagers ourselves. And I think you you kind of make a, a really good point in the book about the don't panic side of things. Yeah. It's helpful to know when to worry. I think actually part of how we can tolerate that teenagers are going to be pretty bumpy in their lives and they're going to have very intense emotions is if we know when it's time to be concerned. So I'll, I'll tell you exactly when I want parents not to panic, but when they should be concerned. <laughs> One is if their teenager's mood isn't going up and down, but it's just down. So we fully expect adolescent moods to be all over the map. That's normal development. It's still a little challenging, but that's what we expect to see. We do not expect to see a teenage mood go to a concerning place and stay there for days. That is unusual. I want parents to be worried if a teenager's mood is in charge of things, if a teenager is so low or so anxious that they aren't living their lives or they're not doing the things they mean to do or want to do. And then the third time to worry is if a teenager engages in what I call costly coping. So they're managing, but they're managing by coping in ways that are going to ultimately come with a price tag. So they're abusing substances or they're being really hard on the family or they are turning against themselves, you know, engaging in self-harm or other self-destructive behaviors. Those are all coping and they actually do all confer relief in the short term, but they cause trouble down the line. So what I'd say is for parents, like those are the lines. If your kid's not over that line, you're looking at typical adolescence, which is bumpy and rich in its own right, but you don't need to be scared. One of the things also you talk about in all your books actually is the role modeling as a parent. So mums, dads, caregivers, what role modeling can we do in these more critical crisis situations or when they're going up and down? And how do I behave as a parent? The ideal version can be summed up in two words, which is that we want to try to be a steady presence for our kids. And that's easy to say, very hard to do. And hard to do for the reasons we've already named, that their feelings are powerful. There are scary headlines all around us. But that's the way we would want to try to respond. And 
I would tell you, if I had to sum up steady presence, it would be responding with empathy to adolescent distress. So when teenagers are very upset, they will often tell us a whole bunch of things that they're very upset about. And our goal, I think, as parents is to ideally just listen. And then as a first attempt at responding, to say something empathic, to say, I'm so sorry, that sounds awful, or I hate that that happened to you, or I wish that were different. And what I would suggest is offer that empathy as though you feel it to be a complete solution to the situation, entirely adequate to address what the teenager needs in that moment. And I want you to do this for a couple of reasons. One is, usually it is. Usually that's all teenagers want, is just to be heard and to feel like the parent wasn't going to give them advice or wasn't going to try to talk them out of the feeling, was just going to empathize. The other thing I think about offering empathy is to me, it's sort of the all-time steady presence move that you're present and that you're empathizing. You're not trying to change the topic or get the kid to stop feeling that way. You're just saying like, oh, I'm so sorry, right? You're really there for it. But when you offer empathy as a total solution, it's also a very steady thing to do. You're not picking up the phone. You're not trying to solve the problem. You're not yourself reacting very strongly as far as they can see. So it sounds simple, but I think it's an extraordinarily powerful way to center ourselves and know what to do when a teenager is struggling. And and it goes a lot further than I think we usually give it credit for. Okay. Sometimes we are not. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes we don't bring our A game. Sometimes we're a bit shouty. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're human and our teenagers know it. And so now do your best to take good care of yourself so that you can be sturdy in the face of adolescent emotionality. Yes. But if you react badly, apologize to your kid. I could write a whole book about the power of apologizing to teenagers. We mess up. We do things we wish we hadn't done. And I think when adults in a very dignified and generous way say to a teenager, you know, I, I want to talk to you about what I said or how I said it. I, I wish it, I hadn't done that. Here's what was going on for me. You didn't serve that reaction. That probably wasn't a very helpful reaction to you. And I apologize. What that does is it, first of all, strengthens our relationships with our teenagers. They know we've messed up. Either we're going to own it or we're not. But it's not like we're going to suddenly expose ourselves as having made an error. Like they know. And it also models how we want them to walk in the world themselves. That if they do things that are over the line, we fully expect that they're going to try to repair it. And so we can show them how it's done. That kind of brings us to, I'd say, the issues around parenting our children, our girls and our boys, and the issues that they're both facing individually as, as their genders at, um, at this kind of point in time, and particularly the kind of narrative around toxic masculinity. I mean, we're having that a huge amount here in the UK. I don't know whether it's such a big issue in the US. And a lot of mums, a lot of parents we're hearing on our Facebook group are worried about this and how to respond to this notion of toxic masculinity. There's a section in my book that I really could have titled, It's Very Hard to Be a Sixth Grade Boy. Sixth grade in the US lands around age 11. And what I argue in this section is something I haven't seen elsewhere. And I'm honestly quite surprised that I haven't seen it articulated before. I also happen to have a sixth grade daughter right now. So I'm also observing this in family life. But the truth about being 11 in a co-ed school is that the girls as a group are underway, at least with the neurological side of puberty, and often with the outward physical signs of puberty. Puberty does a lot. And one of the things it does is it actually adds a whole bunch of dimensions to kids' capacity to think. Their brains develop quite rapidly and become more powerful, more articulated in what the brain itself can do. And so what we see consistently, and we have tons of data on this, is that girls outmatch boys in the classroom, at least in the US. They are really thriving where the boys... But but you also make the point that they outmatch them physically as well. They can run faster. It must be... Exactly. I've never read that before. Yeah. And again, I just pulled all the height and weight and strength charts and speed charts. And so... The 11th grade girl is both outmatching the boy in school. She's a a better machine. (laughs) Yeah, she's a better machine. And she's just because she got upgraded two years earlier. I mean, that's the problem. Like the puberty, as hard as it is, is also an upgrade. So I I really started thinking a lot about these little sixth grade boys who are Mm. basically getting beat in the classroom and then they go out to recess and the girls are bigger, stronger, faster. 
and started to think about their self-esteem, which is often consolidating in that exact moment for some boys around trying to be masculine, which is often defined in that moment as not getting beat by a girl. And then I also looked at the data showing this is when sexual harassment tends to start in school. Yeah. is right around this age, which is much younger than Defensive people. reaction. Mm. Exactly. Which, not that I'm going to no. stick up for that, but like makes it a lot easier to understand where some of this may come from. And so I lay out the argument based entirely just on the numbers and, and what we see in this interesting coincidence. And so what I argue is that we need to be pretty attentive to the self-esteem of these guys and give them ways to feel good about themselves so that they do not turn to taking girls down a few pegs with what is essentially sexualized bullying, right? I mean, yeah. that's that's what harassment is. You know, it's obviously, it's terrible for the girls. It's terrible for the guys who are doing it. They shouldn't be doing it. But I hope that shining a bit of light on this juncture at 11 years old gives us a new way to enter into this problem. Because I think so often we take it up when they look more like adults, you know, when they're in high school mm. in the U.S., ship sailed years ago. Like we actually need to get out in front of it when they're quite a bit younger and think about some of the roots. That doesn't explain all of it, but that sure I think is a is a possibility we should be considering. So we asked our lovely Facebook community, we've got a brilliant group on Facebook about uh, what they would like to ask you to make their lives at home with their teenagers more harmonious. And we did have an avalanche of Oh my God, of questions. hundreds. <laughs> so we've kind of, we've put them into themes because there's definitely th- certain themes that seem to keep emerging. So quite often it's that in the moment stuff, isn't it? What do I do in the moment, right? So I'm going to kick off with this one, which came up quite a lot. Why is my teenager so horrible to me? <laughs> and how do I get my teen to understand that their behavior is really hurtful? They can be cruel, can't they? What they can. do we do in the moment if they're okay. cruel to us? So number one, teenagers' feelings are powerful, and it is not altogether uncommon that by the time it's out of the teenager's mouth, the teenager wishes they hadn't said it. And I think that is often true, and I think we should often assume it to be true. And so one response in the moment is to say, I'm going to pretend like I didn't hear that, or I don't think that came out the way you meant, to actually not react to the statement itself and to presume that um, the teenager regrets it already. That can be a way to neutralize a situation like that. I think another thing that we need to do is to work as hard as we can to not take our teenagers personally. They are working their way through a very hard phase of development. We are are along for the ride. I don't think we talk nearly enough about what we ask teenagers to accomplish, which is we ask them to become entirely independent while actually living at home with us and living 10 feet from us. And so it's going to be a psychological removal because that's all they got. And, And that's going to be what precedes a physical departure. I think the last thing, and I find this to be really my experience of raising teenagers, Try not to hold a grudge. You know, the thing about teenagers is they're surfing their emotions. So one minute they say something that's like really spicy and unpleasant to us. And then the next minute they're really fun and they want to show us something, <laughs> you know, like that they did at school. And so I would say as a parent, like stick up for yourself when you need to say to them, like, you can't talk to me like that. Or I don't think that that's how you meant to say something. Do that. But also you got to let it go. If you are still nursing an injury from the previous day, the teenager for that for them that's like three years ago. Not holding a grudge and drawing some lines can be helpful. Now the other one that came up a lot is this question of motivating teenagers. So there's mm-hmm. a you know they do go through a bit of an apathetic, couldn't care less stage as well. You know, just lying around in their rooms. Lots of mums asked about that. Exams are coming up in the UK. We've got GCSEs, A levels. They're all hunkering down to revise at the moment. Lots of mums saying, do I do their revision timetable for them? Shall I just leave them alone? Do we go mad and organize? Do we let them be? How do you motivate or do you not motivate? So on that topic in particular of kids doing school, I have a long section in the book with a metaphor where I liken school, especially this is more true in the US than in the UK, to a buffet where we require teenagers to go eat everything on the buffet. You know, as adults, we go get what we like and we eat it. My husband eats everything. (laughs) (laughs) For teenagers, especially in the US where we don't actually allow kids to specialize until college, 
we really do ask that they consume it all, whether they like it or not. Putting it in that term, in those terms, helps to make more neutral the fact that they may actually not want it all and they still have to consume it. So if we can think in those terms with teenagers, be empathic, that often they're required to do things that they would not themselves have otherwise selected. I think that that can be a way to be more supportive of them as they're up against large amounts of work. The other thing I would recommend is on my website, which is drlisademore.com, I have a drop-down menu that says, how can I help? And there are six downloadable bookmarks there. And one of them is called How to Do Homework. And it is for teenagers. And it really does recognize that they're not going to want to do everything that they've been asked to do. And it lays out strategies for finding their way through work that they're not in the mood to do, recognizing that there's also work they do want to do. You know, for a lot of teenagers, there's parts of school they are really interested in. And so this bookmark really um, lays out a six-point strategy for getting through it all while acknowledging that they may not have what we call intrinsic motivation, you know, a strong desire to do all of it. But I've really come in my own work as a psychologist to be much more um, neutral about the fact that kids don't always feel like doing the work and that that doesn't say anything about their character. It probably says more about the fact of what schooling means and what we ask of kids and that we can be supportive in inventive ways. And I guess one of the the biggest fears um, of the modern day parent is social media. Going into that uh, that world, mobile phones, gaming, porn, um, the big screen debate, all of that. How do we, you know, successfully put boundaries around that or talk to our children about that? Let's start with the boundaries question because mm-hmm. I think that there's real value in thinking that through. And I'll just say it's a lot easier to put boundaries about it at the outset than to try to establish boundaries after the fact. So I'm speaking largely here to parents who are just thinking about technology coming into their children's lives or you know, thinking about when to give their kid a phone. What I would say is I would not have technology in kids' bedrooms. And I would have that try to be all day long, but certainly not at night. And so in giving a kid a phone, I would have that be an assumed, you know, of one of the parameters. Then there's the issue of talking with kids about social media. So the time will come eventually for a lot, most families where kids are using social media apps. The way adults end this conversation before it even starts is they signal either implicitly or explicitly that they are hostile to social media. And so then when teenagers can detect this, they basically, they'll just sit through the conversation waiting for the adult to wear themselves out and not really hear anything. (laughs) What we have to appreciate is that there's not a teenager on the planet using social media for whom it's not both simultaneously positive and negative. And if we don't express an interest in or get to know what it is they like about it, we will get nowhere trying to talk with them about its downsides. So what I would suggest parents do is say to their teenager, talk to me about social media. What is it that adults don't understand? What is it that you like? What are the good parts? What what am I missing here? Okay, then what are the parts you don't like? And what have you tried to reduce those in your experience? And how can I help with reducing those in your experience? I think we need to be very humble and very curious when we try to talk to teenagers about social media. And I think you know, the reason for this is nobody wants advice from somebody on something where they know more about the thing than the person trying to give them advice. No, that's silly, isn't it? Yeah. And so we need to, you know, be realistic that we don't get it. Like they know we don't get it, but we can, we are on the side of them having a better experience of it. It's about being respectful of them on so everything you're saying, Lisa, it's just, yeah, we need to show them respect in so many different ways, don't we? We do. And, and the way I think about it is, Teenagers have two sides. They have um, immature, easily provoked, rude, salty side. They also have a thoughtful, broad-minded, philosophical, self-advocating side. And the side you speak to is a side that shows up. And so in my experience, regardless of even how the teenager's acting, if you approach them with a deeply respectful attitude that speaks to the fact that inside of that maybe provocative looking 14-year-old is a very thoughtful 40-year-old, you'll have a conversation with a 40-year-old. If you are rude to them, they can see you and raise you. Yeah. <laughs> Got to keep it in your head when you're doing that. <laughs> yeah. I think the final question, because you've touched on 
boundaries. And it is good to set boundaries with consequences and bravely follow them uh, through. It's something we get asked a lot. So general anxiety versus mentally unwell, needing support from a professional. Um, you've mentioned a little bit of you know the changes in behavior, but a lot of our listeners seem to sometimes be really shocked when teenagers go into their rooms and want to shut the door and the, the door they've had open for years and all of, that's all kind of normal behavior, isn't it? How do we deal with general anxiety? You know, because a lot of teenagers are having panic attacks, all sorts of things that might not need professional help or medication. But, you know, it's not just being down. It's a little bit more. How do we deal with that? Anxiety is pretty straightforward to treat. And there are things that families can do at home that make a meaningful difference. That, I think, message isn't always out in in the world. That I think in the culture, what I hear is like, oh, no, this person has anxiety. And it's talked about like it's a life sentence that they're just stuck with it. We're psychologists. We're like, oh, we've understood anxiety for decades. And actually, it's pretty straightforward in terms of managing it. So what I would say to parents, if your child is anxious and it is interfering, it is problematic, it's not healthy, helpful anxiety, there are a couple of strategies to consider. One is to help them rethink what they're worried about. When we come across pathological anxiety, irrational anxiety, it almost always involves overestimating the threat and underestimating your ability to deal with the threat. So if a teenager is saying, I am going to fail, I'm going to fail this thing, I'm absolutely going to fail and I'm going to live under a bridge and it's horrible, work on first the overestimation of the threat and can say, what do you mean fail? Like fail, fail, or you know, can we downgrade that a little bit? And then support their ability to manage the threat. What can you do to prevent that possibility? What have you already done to prevent that possibility? The other thing that works really well for managing anxiety is deep breathing. It hacks into our nervous system. It does slow down the anxiety response. And so actually back on my website, I have another bookmark in that same place about how breathing reduces anxiety. And it under it describes the underlying biology of the process. And in my experience, when teenagers understand the biology behind breathing, they're much more amenable to it. Otherwise, it just seems kind of woo-woo yeah. to suggest <laughs> that you should breathe your way through anxiety. And so those two things alone, truly, I have just summarized a huge amount of what would happen in somebody's practice office that you can entirely <laughs> do at home. Oh, thank you for that. I'm going to ask you one final question because it made really made me laugh um, in the book and you've written about it. Why do I need to let my teenagers tuck me in bed at night? <laughs> Explain that to our listeners. So this was probably one of my favorite things that I discovered while working on this book is that something that was happening in my home turns out to be enormously common, which is that over dinner, you know, I ask great questions. How was school? You know, and then my kid says, fine. And then I say, well, what happened? You know, and they say, Nothing, (laughs) nothing at all. And then when I'm getting ready to go to bed, there they are, ready to talk, chatty as the day is long. And I realized like this is happening everywhere. This is a very common teenage maneuver. And so then I thought, okay, well, this is fascinating. Like, what are they up to? And here's my theory. Well, this isn't a theory. This thing is true. Teenagers are organized around becoming independent. They're driving towards autonomy. And so I think when at dinner, we're asking the questions. It's like, we're calling the meeting and we're setting the agenda. And they don't want to participate in that. They've been doing that all day with their teachers. So if they wait till we're shutting the things down, and then they show up with their topics, they are the ones calling the meeting. They are also the ones setting the agenda. And I've actually had teenagers say to me, you know, at night, my parents, they don't ask so many questions and they don't bring up new topics. And I'm thinking, well, of course they don't. They're trying to go to sleep. They're midlife women. They're so tired. Exhausted. <laughs> and then if the teenager feels like the meeting should wrap up, they can just say, all right, good night. And out they go. I don't think there's a midlife woman on the planet who's going to get out of bed to have a follow-up <laughs> conversation with that child. So they're geniuses. They're geniuses. Yeah. And this allows them to meet the dual needs of both wanting to be self-determining and wanting to connect with people who love them. A lovely, lovely thought to end on, Lisa. Thank you so much. You've been so helpful. And I mean, that's tip of the iceberg. There is so much great advice in the emotional lives of teenagers, which is out now here in the UK. So we definitely recommend all of our listeners, parenting teens should go out and buy the book. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to get in touch with Lorraine and I, there are plenty of ways that you can do it. Why not send us an email at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com or direct message us at postcardsfrommidlife on Instagram. 
We always enjoy hearing from you, our lovely listeners, and we'll respond to as many of your queries as we can. And you can also join us on our private Facebook group, which is a forum for women to discuss the issues that affect us as we navigate this midlife. All you have to do to join is answer three of young Trish's questions to gain access to the group, where you'll find information and friendly support to help you make the most of your second act. And here we are, nostalgia noodling. Trish, I know you've got one which was brought on by me moaning, really, about all the stuff my 11-year-old has to take to school. I had to find something purple, then something green, and then even though she doesn't dress up for World Book Day, we had to find her favourite book, which we couldn't find. There's a lot of stuff I have to take to school. Did that? I don't remember that in my comprehensive in Cornwall. Uh, what that brought my little brain to in its little weird rambling way uh, was when we were little, we had to do, it was mainly patron saints days. So in my school, we'd have to come in with, uh, on the patron saint of your sort of ancestry, so St. Patrick's Day, St. David's Day. And of course, because it ha- it's March, so I've just been thinking about St. Patrick's Day, enjoying a bit of the old crack on St. Patrick's Day. And um, we used to get sent shamrock in a letter from our granny oh. in Ireland. Oh, that's and she'd cute. wrapped it in all this sort of wet tissue because obviously they didn't have anything back in those days that you could possibly send it in. And she'd send us the shamrock and our mum would make us wear it. We'd have to go into school with this little bit of slightly shriveled shamrock on our... Pinned to um, your... Pinned. I'm sure I'm doing it here. Pinned. Pinned to my <laughs> chest. And... Um, Obviously, we were mortified. We weren't. We weren't being particularly patriotic at this point in our life. And I thought, oh, you know, the Welshies get the daffodils. I can't remember what the English get. The English ones, the St George's Great Cross. But um, what about Cornwall? There's a patron saint of Cornwall. Yes, St Piran is the patron saint of Cornwall. Tin miners, patron saint of tin miners, sixth century St Piran. The rumor is. I mean, how can we know these things? Because, you know, were they real or not? Were they real? That St. Piran actually was a Cornish Irish descent. Ooh, right. So that's a bit of sort of an early version of the podcast, Trish. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one female uh, saint in Cornwall as well. Oh, right. St. Udwin, A D W E N. Udwin. And apparently that means. She was St. Valentine in Cornwall. Oh, that's quite that's nice, nice, isn't it? So they yes. that up. Well, the yeah. Irish female saint is St Bridget and they have St Bridget's Day I think it might actually be an official maybe a bank holiday in Ireland mm. I think it's 1st of February and I like her because she's very sort of goddessy and kind of earth and natural and all that kind of thing whereas Patrick in case you don't know Lorraine drove out the snakes from Ireland didn't know they had a snake problem <laughs> but there we go I feel like Militant could make some kind yes. of <laughs> Analogy with the patriarchal snakes or something. Do you think there's a patron saint of uh, midlife women, Trish? Who do you think it would be? Oh, is it J Lo? J Lo, I don't know. I'm not sure. (laughs) Too too different. Too different. We'll think of one. Let's let's ask the people on the Facebook group. Send us hello at postcardsandmidlife.com. Your thoughts on the patron saints for midlife women. We have crossed the finish line. We are at the end of this episode of Postcards from Midlife. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening, everyone. See you next week. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.